0: Hello and welcome to Lawrence Forking Kansas, the podcast about the people and the stories behind the local food you love. I'm Jake.
1: And I'm Kristen. And today we're interviewing Rick Martin and Ponta Flores about the local farming scene in Lawrence.
0: Before we get to the episode, we just want to take a second to acknowledge that the world is, uh, you know, a crazy pra- place right now, and you know, hopefully, listening to this podcast about how you know the, the local Lawrence food scene is coming together and helping each other out, and and kind of working together to get through this crisis, and and how we work together too, you know, during normal times. Um, hopefully, all that will make you feel a little better about everything that's going on, and and uh, hopeful about things that are to come.
1: That said, though, this is still a really tough time for those in the restaurant industry. As everyone knows, restaurants have small margins and they're going to be hit really, really hard by this. However, there are lots of businesses that are still ready to serve the community with takeout and curbside pickup and delivery options. And for places that aren't able to offer those things, a lot of them have gift cards available for purchase online or even over the phone that then you can use after this is all over. Um, and you can check out a frequently updated list of places that are participating in takeout and curbside pickup at lfk.im.
0: Yeah, it was a really cool. Uh, you know, I think like we mentioned in the last episode, we were kind of looking to create a list of you know uh, you know places and what the statuses of uh, of them were, and uh, definitely we're not uh, website gurus at all. Um, so we've kind of been creating a list, and then uh, stumbled upon a local uh, you know website programmer uh, who had also been thinking of this idea and we were actually able to, uh, uh, you know, impart our, all of our, our data to his, and he definitely made a much better looking site than we ever could. So <laughs> it's a very, very good, uh, very good resource. Um, and we do still, uh, help, help with uh, updating it and trying to just, you know, keep an eye on the social medias and, and kind of see what, uh, what every restaurant is doing. But, um, but, um, you know, another good uh, thing to look out for is, um, that you can also support local restaurants and hospitality workers by donating to the Lawrence hospitality crisis fund, um, that Rick talks about in this episode. Um, and you can find the link in the episode description, um, and definitely, uh, be supporting our local farms through CSA purchases, buying from local businesses. There's a lot of them have kind of stepped up in this time and definitely when, Uh, People are worried about food security. I think it's uh, uh, these local, you really see that the local places are are really care about, um, you know, feeding, feeding Lawrence.
1: And as a little bit of a disclaimer, this show was recorded responsibly from a safe distance um, in light of what's going on over video chat. So please forgive us if the audio quality is not quite what you're used to from us. We are still learning how to adapt. Um, But we hope to keep bringing you stories about the food scene in Lawrence, even in the midst of this pandemic.
0: Now let's get on with the show.
1: We're excited to talk to Rick Martin and Ponta Flores today because the two of them are very involved in the local food scene and are currently working together to increase access to locally grown food, both for consumers and for restaurants. Rick and Ponta, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: So, for some background on Rick and Ponta, uh, so Rick is a local chef, um, and we've talked to him before on uh, several of his projects. And if you haven't listened to that episode, check out uh, it's episode 14 of ours. Um, to learn about all the cool stuff that uh, Rick has been involved in. Um but Panta, you're your first time uh, on the show, and uh, you are a uh, you know local farmer at Quali Farms um, in North Lawrence. Um, and you're also a chef at uh, Fields and Ivy.
2: That's right. yep.
1: So Ponta, tell us a little bit about yourself. Are you from Lawrence originally?
2: I am actually a transplant, so I'm from I was born in Topeka. Um, I moved to Lawrence to go to KU for my bachelor's degree and then went and taught English in a couple countries for a few years and then came back and did my master's. So, KU was kind of what has brought me back here. And then, um, moving back to Lawrence this last time was actually the incubator farm and having access to land through the county and being able to lease land was what um, brought me back, a, I guess, a third time, um, really. That's
0: awesome. And so then. You know, when you came back, uh, did you did you end up starting the farm right away, or were you, were you kind of working in restaurants and stuff first? Or?
2: No, I started. Uh, so I, I wanted to start the farm right away, but mm-hmm. I had to get on the list to uh, to be, get started at the incubator farm. So that took mm-hmm. about maybe a month or two. Um, but I was really confident and really just feeling like I was going to have access to land and a plot there. So I went ahead and started. Um, little tiny, little tiny plants, and was just like crossing my fingers, hoping that I had the access to the land. So I really hit the ground running. I mean, starting a farm. I think it was August fifteenth, and making it to farmers market by November fifteenth uh, was oh, wow. kind of a wow. challenge, but I managed to make that happen.
1: Man, that's impressive. Yeah, it was quick. <laughs> yeah. So were you always interested in farming, or what kind of brought this into your life?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've always had an interest in growing food. You know, my grandfather had a had a garden at his house. Um, we had one at my house when I was growing up, too. So I'd kind of always, you know, grown up around gardening, at least. Um, and then what really, really got me into it was kind of fast forward all the way to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of struggling financially. I didn't always, you know, have three meals a day because it was kind of that or rent and just approached my landlord and said, hey, could I just tear up a little patch over here on the side of the apartment building and start growing some of my own food? And I was really lucky because they said yes. (laughs) Um, And so that was when I really started digging in again. Um, And then after graduate school, ended up moving to California for about three years and uh, really got taken under the wing of some amazing people at uh, Spiral Gardens in Berkeley, California. Mm-hmm. And I got to help co-direct that food security nonprofit for about three years. And, and they really taught me pretty formally, like farming and nursery work and agriculture and the power of people and how we all need access to land uh, to be uh, food sovereign eventually.
0: And so, so you came back and started. So where'd the name, so the, the name of the farm, Muscle Wa Quali. where'd that name come from?
2: So uh, Quali means the people's farms. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a translation from Nahuatl, which is one of the indigenous Mexican languages. Um, And it's the closest one I can trace my own roots to. So uh, my great grandfather coming from Leon in Mexico, um, they would have been uh, traditionally and indigenously speaking Nahuatl. So I wanted to kind of carry that ancestral name with um, with the name of the farm as well. That's
0: awesome. That's really cool. So a little bit more about your farm so you're and this is something we're definitely this is something we're learning about too a little bit more but you, so you're the incubator farm what that's uh is that the common ground um is that the same program that i've read about like it's the common ground program that uh, goes through douglas county or
2: yeah so the incubator farm is a piece of common ground common ground is um mm. kind of uh in charge of all of the community gardens throughout town and there's mm. there's quite a few of them throughout town um so the incubator farm falls underneath that that program.
0: Okay. And so how yeah. does the inc- you know how, so what do they do, you know, how does that help, you know, producers start up and you know, how, you know, is it just pro- get, helping provide you with the land or is it, you know, teaching you?
2: Yeah, so when I joined um it just is about a 5 acre site that you can lease um plots as small as a quarter of an acre. I have almost a full acre. Um, and for beginning farmers, access to land is really, really difficult, but the program actually makes um, land really affordable, and you can lease from the city for $100 per year per acre, um, plus your water usage, so it's, it's really, really affordable. Um, I pay $80 per year, and you get a three-year lease that you can renew. Um, and so, yeah, the incubator farm, is when it started, was mostly just pretty hands-off and just providing, not even just, providing amazing access to land for people because it's a really hard thing to get if you don't have the capital. Mm. Um, But it's starting to really take on a new shape with um, the things that Rick and Tom Bowler at Extension um, and Eileen Horn, who was I think one of the first people to start the incubator farm or one of the first managers of the incubator farm. um, They're going to actually provide us, well they already have provided us with tools. So we got some nice shiny new uh, tools cedars and double wheel hose and a giant salad spinner that has saved so many hours of my life already this season <laughs> really? um, and then eventually also a wash station and then um, some formalized classes through Douglas County Extension and then also Rick's part being uh, connecting us to restaurants so helping us actually enter enter the market and bringing our crop to uh, to sell.
1: Hmm. Wow so most people then that are you know, working land through the incubator farm are then doing it for production, like for restaurants or some other bigger scale thing. It's not just like people, you know, out there growing stuff for themselves, like a usual kind of community garden situation is more like production scale.
2: It is definitely more production focused. Um, we're, I'm kind of trying to organize and I've been trying to organize everyone out there to, um, you know, bring all of our crop together to then make that af- like available to restaurants because you need, you really need scale And even to market or like um, a CSA, like Community Supported Mm. Agriculture, you need some kind Mm. of scale um, and you just need a group of people. Really, it's it's really hard to do everything by yourself. I've been finding out these last three weeks, (laughs) um, having launched a CSA just out of nowhere (laughs) um, and now becoming the delivery driver and like the I guess I already was the accountant, but another (laughs) form of accounting and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there's definitely a mix of people out there who want to bring Uh, Produce to restaurants and there's some people who are kind of doing it more as like feeding themselves hobby kind of thing, but uh, Most people are trying to make a business out of it for sure
0: Cool. Hmm. How many plots of land are there out there? Like, you know, how is it divided up? I guess Uh,
2: There's a couple different sizes of plots So you've got Mm -hmm. quarter acre plots and you've got about a third acre plot and you can Mm -hmm. you can take up more than one Like I'm on three right now. So I'm getting close to an acre Um, as far as farmers go Well, let's see. Definitely going to give shout outs to Amy and Tracy of Little Bluestem Farms, Bo of Courage Farms, David and his family, uh, Michael and Vince and his crew as well. Um, And then myself. So we've got quite a few of us out there um, working some smaller plots of land between, like I said, between like a quarter of an acre and like one and one and a half acre.
1: Cool. (laughs) What kind of stuff are you growing right now?
2: Oh, right now it's all about the greens so the spinach that I'm harvesting now I actually planted last fall Um, it's one of the best things one of my favorite things to plant in the fall because you get to see green all winter you just see these teeny tiny little spinach leaves that just kind of hang out through the snow and the frost and the cold and all that Mm -hmm. and um, it's amazing how how they can just survive completely unprotected and then just to see them really bust up when the soil temperatures warm up so Greens are a huge one, radishes, I've got beets going in the ground already, um, dug some potatoes, the garlic is looking great from what I planted from last fall, um, and then I actually just put in a whole bunch of perennial plants, so I just put in about 300 plus strawberry plants, um, about, you know, 30, 40 cane berries, so boysenberries, blackberries, raspberries, um, about 30, 40, uh, blueberry bushes as well, so... I'm really moving to kind of perennialize things, get more fruit production going. Um, I also put in grapes and hops, I forgot those two. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've got a a whole lot of things going on and I'm debating whether or not to go buy a bunch of purple asparagus crowns tomorrow. So we'll see if I get some asparagus production started up soon too.
0: It's crazy. I mean, how do you pick what you're going to do? Is it just kind of what you like to eat or what you know will sell well or just what you want to play with?
2: A lot of it's what I love to eat. Yeah, Yeah. a lot of it's definitely what I love to eat. Boysenberries are probably one of my favorite berries, hands down. Um, The other thing is when I kind of started, I would go to the Lawrence Farmer's Market and kind of see, you know, before I had access to land, I would see what people were selling. And then I try to find varieties that are a little bit different. So you'll find like Last year, I had carrots, but they were like purple on the outside and yellow in the middle. Mm. Um, Or, you know, just various types of radishes like watermelon radishes or purple radishes or um, black Japanese radishes that people typically don't see. So I kind of like to focus on those types of things as well as indigenous Mexican herbs. Um, Mm. There's two of my like favorite herbs. I guess I should put three in there. One is called papalo and one is called papiche. Um, papalo and papiche are what was actually used before the Spanish brought cilantro to the Americas. So, okay. cilantro is not actually part of indigenous Mexican food, um, and they taste very similar. Um, they're, I would say they're a little bit more citrusy and a little bit more, not really spicy, but more kind of like an arugula flavor, almost. Mm, okay. Um, and they're just yeah, really amazing herbs that take care of themselves well. They're really drought tolerant. They're really, really awesome plants to grow. <laughs> and then the other one is um, in the marigold family. Um, some people call it pericone or the grandmother plants um, or uh, Mexican tarragon because its leaves taste like tarragon. It's tiny little orange flower cl- clusters also taste like tarragon. Um, and I always encourage people to eat more flowers because it's one of my favorite things is edible flowers that have really impactful flavor. Um, it's another thing that I really love to grow.
0: Oh, I'm interested. Uh, it just made me think, you know, like some people don't, you know, don't like cilantro or think it tastes soapy. Who no. cares? Yeah. Do, you, do you know, does that, does it have the same effect with the, that type that you grow? Do you know, do you know as a researcher?
2: I have definitely been, um, I've had a few subjects, I'll, I'll yeah. put it that way, uh, <laughs> and I've given, I think probably about 12, 14 people, each of those um, who have the, the, the thing that makes it taste like, makes cilantro taste like soap, yeah. and yeah. only one has noted any soap flavor at all, and they are also a chef with a really good palate, so yeah. they're yeah. the ones who could kind of like tease it out just oh. a little bit. Um, So, most people who have that aversion to cilantro don't have the aversion to papiche or to papalo.
1: Where do you get, like, seeds for those things?
2: Um, For those, I think, let's see, the papiche I think I got from Johnny's. And then the papalo I got from a friend when I was out in California. So, I've just been growing that and saving my own seed. Mm -hmm. Um, And at this point with the papiche as well, I've just, you know, for about three, almost three years, I've been saving seed and planting it from saved seed.
0: So you mentioned the, uh, well, actually, one thing I remember we read too. So w- with your farm, you're also you also focus on doing um, you know certain uh, certain practices like no-till, no fossil fuel machines. Um, so what, you know wh- why is that important to you to do that, or you know w- what differences do you see or the approaches you have to take because of that?
2: Yeah, definitely. So no-till um, is one of the approaches that for me is is a lot uh, about environmental. Standards. Um, our Earth has two, uh, two, the big, two biggest carbon sinks on Earth are the oceans and the soil. So the things that hold carbon um, in the soil and keep it from being in the atmosphere are those two things: the oceans and the soil. So the soil can really only hold that carbon if it stays intact and if it stays alive, um, because soil is very, very much alive. It has all kinds of microorganisms and bacteria.s Um, And little creatures living in there that that help enrich it and keep it here Um, And so when you're tilling you're actually bringing up those microbes and things that don't want to be exposed to light And they're dying and off-gassing so you're not holding any of that carbon Into uh, the soil and you're also kind of destroying the structure of it Um, The other reason I don't like to till is because you're also compacting the soil a lot which can lead Mm -hmm. to erosion um, or just the inability to use that land at all if it's overly compacted. Um, and then also you end up having all kinds of drain off problems and we all know how bad, um, big ag is, especially with like nitrogen runoff into water systems. So if you have that compaction and that heavy use of, and reliance on, um, nutrients, then you're going to have a lot of runoff into our, essentially into our drinking water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really trying to slow everything down um, and do no-till, which does take time to, to notice a, a difference mm-hmm. in yield. It takes about two, three years of remediating soil for it to really show results as far as yield goes. But for me, that's, that's totally worth it. Um, mm-hmm. I can renew my lease at least three times. And even if I couldn't, if I could you know, make an entire acre no-till with a, improved soil and had to pass it off to somebody else, I'd do that. the same thing like no problem um the no fossil fuel part is partially a challenge to myself and also a challenge to the idea that we need to continue to be reliant on an industry that has been also contributing a lot to destroying our earth um you know these these pipelines that we're seeing you know going through indigenous people's communities and lands and And sacred spaces and all that, like that part alone should make everyone want to make it stop. Um, The idea of CO2 emissions should be the other reason why everybody should just want to make it stop. Um, And so kind of trying to be an example and do research on how that can be done on a scalable level is -hmm. really important to me as well.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you do. I mean, you do do a lot of, you know, you're using the farm a lot for research as well. So Mm -hmm. what's that process like?
2: Um, I did get a research grant from the USDA. So the USDA has a department called SARE, which is Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education. Mm -hmm. Um, They have farmer rancher grants. So I got one um, to do some research on no-till corn um and using not even just just no-till corn but also um, ancestral practices of growing corn. Mm-hmm. The research that I did did a, it was a comparative yield analysis between you know like how we would typically do no-till corn because that that is a thing people use seed drills and you know they did you can do no-till corn for sure in a conventional setting um and then the other half of the samples, used these methods from a codex that's from the 1500s that was actually indigenous Mexican people who recorded um, exactly how corn was cultivated. Um, And this would have been at the time of the Spanish, you know, coming to the Americas. Um, And so I did did the research study and it actually proved just to a slight amount that the indigenous methods yielded more than the conventional no-till methods did. Um, so that's one way I do research is I actually got a grant through the USDA. The other way is I have a whim about how this might work better than that and I'll do two samples and it'll be completely informal but um, I just think it's important to continually try and test myself and my methods um, and see where I can improve and how I could also end up helping other people improve their systems as well.
0: How long does that go on for then? I mean or do you plan? On, is there like a time frame within that grant or whatever for doing that research? Or?
2: Yeah, that was a one-time grant. It's a mm-hmm. you have two years to complete it because um, mm-hmm. some people will need longer periods of time. But mine, mine, I'm in the final report writing stages right now. But it's proving a little difficult because um, I hired a couple undergraduate researchers who are having trouble accessing computers right now. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we're gonna try to figure that part out and get that <laughs> final report done mm-hmm. and submitted so we can uh, let everybody let everybody have a read.
1: Wow. I was gonna ask, I mean, it sounds like you have obviously like a lot of different kind of projects going on. So sounds like you do have some help. Do you have people help you with, um, you know, other aspects of like farming or anything else?
2: Um, Occasionally I'll have some volunteers to the farm. Um, You know, my friend Jen Martin came out and and helped me do some, uh, fix up some of my strawberry patch on the community kind of plot that I set aside and, um, you know one of my one of my farmer buddies who also works at the restaurant, Ed Irvine came out from his vineyard and his parents' vineyard to help me plant some strawberries because I was feeling uh, pretty achy the other day. Um, and you know so I'll have some people come out and, and stop out for sure. Um, but for the most part it is me. Um, my researchers are amazing and I wish they weren't trapped in Wichita right now because I know they'd be out volunteering as well so, you know, Ashley and, and Paula are, are amazing uh, researchers and, and farmers, and I wish they could be out there with me right now, but um, but yeah, for the most part, it's it's me, um, but I'm very lucky and very fortunate to have some people come through uh, when I really, really need them to, to help out with some stuff for sure.
0: And so you mentioned earlier, where do people get your pr- produce? So you mentioned like the CSA, but is that more, that's probably, it sounded like that was kind of a recent uh, thing just due to the situation we're in. Yeah,
2: super recent. So, yeah. uh, let's see, yesterday was delivery week three. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I used to sell my produce at Cotton's Hardware Farmers Market, the Thursday right. market. Right. Um, they are still doing that. They have, I think, two vendors right now. Right. Um, and so the Thursday market, I think, is right now between 4 and 6 p.m. You might need to double check in case they've changed that time. Um, And then to the restaurant, that was one of my, really my biggest client um, was selling to the restaurants and mostly just Fields and Ivy. It's the only restaurant I've actually sold to so far. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, the CSA thing has kind of started to take off. I've gone and added, you know five or six people every week. So hopefully that trend keeps going until I have to be like, okay, that's all I can do by myself. <laughs> right.
0: So that's, yeah, so that's kind of where, you know, Rick, you come into this. So you're, you're kind of, you've kind of paired up here with uh, Panta to, you know, help, help him with that transition, right? Of getting pro- product from his farm into, into the, you know, into the restaurants. Um, Obviously, probably some of that's been uh, affected by what's going on now. But um, kind of what, what what got you involved in this? I mean, what? I mean, I know you've you've been in the Lawrence food scene for quite a, quite a bit, and you know, I think there's there's always been a, a degree, I think, of of you know, local buying local. But um, you know, kind of how have you seen that evolve over the years?
3: Sure, and you know, just to point out, you know, the the goal with this project and this grant is to. Uh, get all of the incubator farmers that want to be in the commercial and wholesale market uh, out there and you know that's um, you know what we really want to see is if the incubator can be a, a, a space for people that want to try it out you know I, I always tell people in the restaurant business you know don't commit to being a chef or even uh, you know a, a career restaurant person if you don't just try it out first because it's hard and farming is very difficult and can be very defeating if you're not totally dedicated so it just it provides a great space for those that want to see you know you know dip their toe in the water and kind of see what it's like um, but you know for me you know I, a lot of similarities to Ponta. I mean I I grew up around a garden and Uh, Always growing food, you know to this day my mom can produce a salad in the middle of January from her yard I mean, it's it's just amazing uh, how I learned a lot of those uh, skills of just kind of bootstrapping and figuring out ways to not be hungry and That you know, it sometimes had some negative connotations for me growing up because You know, we didn't have food that other kids had and so we often you know lived out of the yard or off of my uncle's garden and I think that really started my passion for local foods at least it it was there you know as I got older I remember one time I took a trip to uh, Washington State and hopped around some of the San Juan Islands and uh, with my brother and made this meal all that was everything i got off of orcas island and prepared this meal that night and i think that was the real spark in about mid-90s when i thought man this is pretty amazing i i just created this this meal and everything i bought this afternoon from the farmer's market the oysters from the bay and hmm. thankfully at the time i worked for chuck mackerel at free state brewery who was really uh setting the tone for that in a lot of ways and Uh, kind of you know taking me under his wing uh, from from a local food perspective and allowed me to really get in with a lot of these farmers and at that time it was a lot of farmers that certainly had uh, a lot of uh, uh, You know skills Like Ponta said a lot of them were maybe uh, farmers market uh, Some of them more boutique type of growers, but we had some that were trying to get into the commercial market but it wasn't until you know, maybe you know, the mid early to mid2000s that uh, we started to see a lot more. And, and a part of it was just starting the conversations. And I, I always loved it when, when growers would come to me and say, "Well, what do you want as a restaurant?" And mm-hmm. for me, that really means a lot because it, it gives me the chance to have that conversation to say, well, you know uh, it's not just my perspective but a lot of these chefs they want the convenience of picking up a phone and ordering and having the pack sizes that are consistent and they're familiar with and uh, that really uh, resonated with uh, some people. Uh, Mike Ryan who was a farmer working at the uh, uh, K-State farm in Olathe really started uh, getting a lot of the student uh, the, the student body working on the cleaning and the pack sizing and, and getting things le- really restaurant ready because we hadn't really seen that yet and then of course mm-hmm. Scotty Thelman at Juniper Hill uh, kind of took that and ran with it and you know is still you know, doing a lot of business uh, from you know, using those same words of you know well let's let's get these products uh, really restaurant ready so that the uh, the yields are high and the prep is low because that's always kind of what we're <laughs> wanting in restaurants yeah. and, um, and and now there's uh, just a, a, a lot of people that are interested in doing it and so you know working with the incubator farm and you know my role and my expertise is simply going to be you know building that interface of helping these these growers, producers, learn what it's like to try to get into that uh, market and kind of you know teaching them the, the the base level lessons that they'll need to know before they go out and try to do it on their own. Because it's not easy to walk in the front door of a restaurant, let alone the back door and say, hey, I got some food to sell uh, on a busy afternoon.
0: So what's that interface look like then? I, know, I think you mentioned, you know, some of it, you're trying to develop an app for it or, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of That so what how does that work with, you know, how does the restaurant that is it a way for a restaurant to request? What they kind of want or a way to like almost create a market on there? What's kind of your frame of how you think um, that'll that'll form?
3: Well, you know restaurants need to make money (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so uh, You know the the old school thought was well I can't afford to shop at farmers market because the produce is too expensive and mm-hmm. what we've really been trying to work on with a lot of growers is to um, you know, h- help chefs understand that your products are better. There's a reason why you're putting a premium on it because you put a lot of hard work and a lot of time and they taste better. They're more nutrient dense. They haven't been sitting on a truck for three or four weeks. Uh, so you know, th- that and the costing aspect of it. And that's where the app that I developed, Kitchen Scratch, comes in to help mm-hmm. small chefs understand where their costs are in the food and allow them, if if Ponce calls and says, hey, I've got 30 pounds of green beans at, you know, 275 a pound, uh, with this device, a chef can put that ingredient in their system, build a menu item out of it, and then see if they actually can you know, create, generate a profit from that before they even purchase it. And so mm-hmm. that, that really gets you out in front of that risk of saying, yeah, I'll take your green beans. And then, you know, maybe the green beans they didn't ask for the price, the, they came in, you used them, you lost money on them that weekend. So this really helps everybody, uh, It helps the farmer know that, yeah, my product is great and I know it and it helps the chef know that they can sell it and kind of pass that premium on to the customers, cause the customers want it too.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, especially in a town like Lawrence, you know, that's something that's important to a lot of people mm-hmm. when they're going out, not only that the restaurant is local, but that they're using, you know, local produce too.
0: So have you seen, you know, have you seen then, you know, a like, once again, you know, maybe recent situations have, have changed some things, but in your initial start of this, have, have you seen the engagement from the from the restaurants and all that, or, or, or are you still, was it still too early to kind it's, of...
3: It's too to early, and with yeah. the crisis that's upon us, um, you yeah. know, we're hoping and praying that we have restaurants this growing season. Mm-hmm. So, seriously, right. um, you know, I think what Ponta and I are doing is really you know, planting the seeds, so to speak, and 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 testing the market to see if uh, if, you know, Ponta's idea of kind of aggregating some of the growers to be able to produce larger amounts for either a CSA or, you know, restaurant orders or maybe even, you know, schools or institutions. and, And and that that's the type of of capacity building that I think we really need to think about is that, you know, we don't want to drive a pickup truck with two cases of produce on it. We want to, you know, get a box truck with you know 30 cases of produce on it that's local to help our food system uh, survive things like this. And uh, so that's really what this is about. It's an incubator, therefore, we're incubating a lot of ideas and concepts through it to see. And of course, we already had Ponta knows a lot about agriculture. I know a lot about mm-hmm. how the business side of restaurants work. So we're, you know, that's really what it's about is how can we build a system that can uh, you know, get these local products uh, into more places.
0: That's really cool. And, and all this is supported by Douglas County, right? And that's, you know, you guys have gotten kind of a grant to work on this.
3: Yeah, so Douglas County uh, and the city of Lawrence, uh, you know, my wife, Eileen Horn, started the common ground program uh, in 2012. The incubator farm came soon after some of the community gardens were started and we uh th- there's been several different grants and programs that have come along this one is from the green wish and elizabeth schultz uh, foundation that has allowed uh, us to you know uh, bring in a small staff to work on this uh, bring in k-state extension make sure you know we've got all the right uh, uh, brains <laughs> uh, on the project and of course you know, the farm to restaurant component of it as well, that uh, is really important to make it happen. And, uh, you know, Common Ground has done a lot of amazing things. Uh, it, it, the reach that it's uh, gotten just from residential community gardens and getting families better food all the way to, you know, large scale uh, farming projects like this. It's, it's, it's amazing to hear somebody say that they're farming on several acres at a you know, a a county funded community garden. That's, that's, that, that doesn't really happen in very many other places. Yeah,
0: that's what I was thinking about. It's yeah, it's a, it's it's kind of really cool that, you know, the county and the city really support something like this. I mean, why do you think, why do you think that that support is there? I mean, is it, I mean, is it just because of kind of the culture probably Lawrence has generated around the food system or, you know what What makes lawrence more successful i guess than than other
3: well i'll comment places. and let Ponta follow up because i want to hear his perspective but uh, to me i think that right. obviously the lawrence culture wants to support their local restaurants um that's mm-hmm. that's been uh, really big for us for a long time uh n- now we've kind of gotten to an age where now the growers and producers hang out with the chefs and the restaurant owners. We're all a community, we're all friends. Um, we, we got each other's backs. And so mm-hmm. there's just a, a culture here that you don't see in a lot of other places where they're still 10 or 15 years behind where you, you don't really know your producer or your mm-hmm. farmer. And uh, as, every year that we continue growing these relationships, uh, it, it just makes it better because um, of what we want to do for each other and how we want to tell the new chef that, that Ponte Leone Leon has these things and they're really great and you really need to call him. And we just, we build that system more and more. And I, that's why I think we're a lot farther ahead than other communities. Plus, we've got really great soils here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely everything you've just said for sure. um and I don't know the exact history of, you know, what, what exactly started the incubator farm specifically. I know you mentioned Eileen, um, you know, started the Common Ground Project. But one thing that I kind of want to say to maybe anybody else in a county position in some other county that's not Douglas County is think of it this way. You have arable land that your parks and rec is otherwise going to need to take care of, um, like the former incubator site. Um, Instead of doing that, you can allow multiple individuals the opportunity of potentially their lifetime thinking, you know, they'd never have access to land in any way to start a farm, Um, giving those people the ability to do that, um, to be able to build businesses and feed themselves and feed their community. And then also the, um, you know, we pay for an annual fee as well. So not only are you you reducing the amount of labor that your parks and rec has to do, but you're providing access to land for people who can't afford it to do an amazing thing such as grow food. Mm -hmm. Um, So just that's kind of like my thinking of why it's at least been able to continue to go because it's it's really is a win-win in that scenario for the county and for um, for people like me.
0: That's kind of cool you kind of wear two hats there because you're also you also you know uh, chef you know you're chef in the at Fields and Ivy as well so what's that like to be on you know kind of get to see both sides and and kind of yeah you know, have a hand i guess and maybe influence your your recipe your your, your menu and um yeah kind of have more more involvement i guess
2: um yeah so for me um the first i'll never forget the first time um i was on salad station for the night and had brought in literally a box of of lettuce that i had picked that same day earlier that morning um and just pre- prepping that and seeing it go out on a plate was just like a really amazing feeling. Um, yeah. It's really, it's really, really hard to describe, but it was just kind of like so many of my little tiny like pipe dreams just like found each other and like it happened. Um, just to be able to see um, that part of it, it was amazing, but it's also, you know, thinking of the actual business and logistics side, it's good to know how does a restaurant, um, you know, store things. Um, I did the serve safe program um, through Just Food. So they have a, a kitchen work, a program called Kitchen Works where you can um, get a Serve Safe Manager certification and do some culinary training for a week. Um, you also get Chef's Knives and like 100 bucks too. So like amazing program. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, being able to do those things and then see, you know, the other end of it um, has just really shown me, you know, how, how people want to see stuff packaged. Um, like Rick was saying, how people want to see... Um, stuff really close to being put on a plate so really really clean stuff um, less prep time now I know what prep time is um, having, <laughs> having put in quite a few prep hours at this point um, it's just really you know not only just for me personally and emotionally like an amazing thing to be able to be on both sides but also just it really helps me understand um, our food system a lot deeper knowing both sides for sure
1: um, and Ponta, one other thing that we wanted to ask you about at your farm, you also have a um, a food donation program called the unsuspended food program. So want to talk a little bit about what that is and how it came to be.
2: Yeah, for sure. So I had heard um, about the concept of a suspended coffee. Um, so for those unfamiliar, a suspended coffee is where you can go into a cafe, you can order your coffee and you can pay for a second coffee. Um, What they'll do then is they'll put like a post-it note or they'll have some kind of system like put a post-it note on a wall and somebody who can't afford a cup of coffee can come take a post-it note and turn it in and get coffee. Um, So kind of like people will pay for it first and then they can get the, the thing after. The unsuspended food program is actually flipping that on its head. So instead of people donating to me first and then me donating food, I get the fresh food where I know it needs to go and where I can get it to as fast as I can. And then I collect donations on the back end. Um, So Mm -hmm. far, I've donated just over about $3,000 worth of produce. um, And I've been able to raise some money on the back end, which, like I said, it's, it's it's a food first, fun second type program. I'm doing it because of the foods first part. Um, it doesn't hurt to have the fun second part come in, but that's not the overall purpose of it for sure. It's it's really just to get food to where it needs to go. Um, You know, I've made donations to the KU Student Pantry, which is relatively new. Um, uh, Individuals I know or community organizers who know people who need food. Um, uh, I remember doing a donation to Haskell University and also working with admins over there to make sure that they had a food pantry because as soon as I heard KU had one, I had to go run and be like, wait, does Haskell have one too? No, they don't. All right, hey, Just Foods, let's sit down. A month later, done. Like, they just, Just wow. Foods is amazing. They were really hopping on on that as soon as I pointed that out. And I was like, hey, let's get one over there too. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but so, yeah, doing, you know, a lot of, not even just, like it's not even just donating food. It's also about, you know, for me, putting in community cooking hours as well, which I haven't factored into the unsuspended food total, but that's okay too. Um, mm-hmm. I for about a year I helped cook the free veggie lunch at the ECM up on near KU's campus. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, it's it, it is about donating the food and making sure the food making sure that the food goes where it needs to be. But I also just love community cooking, so that's another kind of part of the part piece of the puzzle that I want to try to find more time for. And now with everything going on, it's going to be a little bit interesting to figure out how to do that. But I still kind of want to think about mm-hmm. that angle too.
0: Um. And kind of, you know, I think the other thing I, w- I want to get you guys' opinion on is, is you know, obviously a crazy situation we're in right now and, you know, kind of talking about the programs you've been talking about, um, you know, how, how do you think that, I'm curious what's, you know, it, it's a tricky thing like you brought up, Rick, of, you know, obviously restaurants need to make money and especially at this time it's, it's you know, you got to, you have very small margins and now you have even smaller margins and all that. So, in like you said, some you know, getting locally does, you know, does have a, higher, you know, can have a higher cost because you get in higher, you know, higher uh, quality. Um, so how do you see that being affected right now by, you know, kind of what's going on? And
3: Well, you know, there's a, a possibility that we may have to rely on food that Ponta is growing and right, Scotty yeah. Thelman is growing and, you know, proteins that Michael Beard is distributing. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, a scary thing for sure, but the confidence that i have um you know getting up every day and working from home is that there are a lot of great people out there that have believed for a long time that we can sustain our own food system in the call river valley and and i know that we can uh it's it's sad that it's going to take some things like this to really stress our our uh, national supply lines and really make us question um, where our food comes from and can I localize it a little bit more or maybe a lot more. Um, You know, if everybody had, you know, gardens planted right now, there might be a little bit less stress uh, when it comes to things like that. And we're seeing it at the Mm -hmm. grocery stores with some of the panic buying. And I think a lot of that panic buying is coming from the fact that people, a lot of people in our community don't know that there is local food, and they don't know how to grow it themselves, um, and and those are things that you know we've just kind of we've we've taken it out of our um, learning pattern over time, and uh, it, it it certainly doesn't help us at all. Uh, but you know, I think that. It's a good time for uh, everybody to learn some good lessons. Um, I I feel really sad that the restaurants are going to have to uh, be the you know bear the brunt of it and take it really hard uh, because you know it's expensive to operate a restaurant on a daily basis. You got to hope that the revenues uh, take care of the expenses, and it's really hard. And expensive to close a restaurant, and it's very expensive to open a restaurant. And you're going to see a lot of restaurants go through that process uh, over uh, the next uh, weeks or months or, or whatever it turns out to be. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I, you know, I certainly hope that the public doesn't think that it's just going to be a flip of the switch and restaurants are going to open the doors. It's going to take some time. You know, you know, as, as Ponce knows as well. The, the, the gears and the mechanics that happen inside of a, of a, a restaurant structure, uh, it's a kind of a machine. And if you, you know, stop that machine, uh, it takes a while to get it going again in a fluid motion. And uh, that's, that's one of the things that uh, it, it's gonna be hard. Uh, and if, if a lot of this means that the local produce market is really thriving because of that, and when restaurants open up they are buying a whole lot more local produce i think that's a positive outcome uh from from right. a, a otherwise pretty negative thing that's going on right now
0: yeah it's it's yeah, it's kind of where i was leaning i was like you know yeah, i think it, you got two sides of it right yeah you do have the restaurants struggling but i mean i think we've seen i've seen some stuff too locally like you said that have popped up that i'm like oh wow like you know panta like you doing the csa you know kind of switching to that it's like yeah, I think you know because yeah, if you go to the grocery store, sometimes they'll be out of all this stuff, and mm-hmm. you're like, oh no! But then you don't realize, yeah, in your backyard we have plenty of producers oh, that local are doing stuff. yeah, and like, know, um, sunfla- yeah, sunflower
1: provisions is you know yeah, another we'll, thing that at least on our radar just popped up you know in the last couple of weeks and yeah, so it's has like, a lot of nice local stuff.
0: Yeah, and you're like, oh wow, we can source you know if you shop there, it's like man, you can buy basically everything you need like you know and it's all all local so yeah i think that's that is the encouraging thing i think that's that's kind of a at least nice to hear
2: that yeah it's you know, it's um really really interesting seeing um so many people switch over to csa's too you know you'll have like um i think Mellowfields just started one and it's it's kind of yeah. funny too because like for anyone listening who wants to take part in one you could pretty much pick a day of the week and that would let you know who to go with because we're all kind of delivering on different days. So it's really interesting seeing not only so many people switch over into CSA models, but to see everybody kind of line up in a way that's just like really ready to help everyone just based on the days people pick for deliveries even. It's it's really Mm -hmm. pretty amazing.
0: So if people wanted to sign up for your CSA, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: They can text the farm line. So I'll, uh, on Sundays, I'll do a blast out to anybody who wants the list of what will be available for delivery the next day. That number is 785-274-9848. Um, so they can text that line and they can be on the kind of roster for, um, for the box of the week. I decided not to make people pay up front for the entire season just so that they can be flexible. They decide that, you know, they'd rather go grocery store they'd rather, you know, try another CSA out for a little bit, um, you know, really spread that around. I'd You know, try a couple different farms, please. Like, I'd love to see everybody get a little bit of uh, a little bit of love from everybody and have them get a little bit of food from each of those different places uh, for sure.
0: And Rick, how about, you know, from the restaurant side, I know um, we wanted to talk a little bit too. I know you've been involved in it was the, you know, Lawrence Restaurant Association has gone ahead and kind of created a hospitality crisis fund. Um, what's that been? Uh, I know that's also come come around pretty quick and fast, but um, yeah, what, what are you seeing there?
3: Yeah. So there's kind of another blessing uh, in that one that uh, our group started about a year and a half ago working on a a situational crisis fund for restaurant staff. And the idea was, you know, we we spend a lot of time donating our time and resources and money to a lot of causes as, you know, local restaurants. And we made a project where let's look out for ourselves. And that is if a server at Fields and Ivy, um, maybe, you know, broke an ankle and couldn't serve for a couple of months, we wanted to develop a fund that would step in and help that person pay their bills, get some groceries, um, pay their child care, whatever that should be, so that they were still there and available for our, uh, for their position um, when they were well again. And we we had some uh, funding, some you know, five hundred one c three issues, some tax issues that we. You know, take a long time to solve, and you know the the project got kind of put on the back burner a little bit. And so, Mm -hmm. when this came about, we realized that we had had this um, uh, project that was three fourths of the way done, and Mm -hmm. uh, we already had the structure put in place. And what we needed to do was figure out kind of some bylaws and some rules of how to get money into people's hands really, really quickly. And uh, Emily Peterson, and, uh, merchants, and, and Cody Bates of uh, Burger Stand and Bon Bon really stepped in to, uh, you know, build this amazing system where we can get this, uh, the funds coming in, and within twenty-four hours uh, go through an application process and get two hundred fifty dollars in somebody's hands through Venmo or PayPal or a check or whatever that should be, so that they can they can keep. The lights on, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Keep keep some food on the table. Um, satisfy a bill here and there, and uh, hopefully we can keep cycling that funding so that uh, you know, in it, maybe in two weeks, we've still got funding coming in, and, and we can you know uh, take care of them again, sort of like a payday. Um, but right now, we're just we can't even satisfy the the demand that we have of qualified applicants coming in. And um, we're, we're maybe satisfying that about 60 to 65%. And uh, we're, we're really hoping uh, to come up with some creative ideas to uh, get more of that funding. The United Way has stepped in to help us get a 501c3 status so that we can accept some bigger donations and provide that tax uh, receipt for them. Um, mm. But... Mm. You know, it's it's dire right now uh, with the amount of yeah. people that are unemployed in our community that didn't have any savings, uh, you know, didn't have uh, enough food in the cupboard because they were working as long as they could to just keep the income coming in. So, um, you know, for me, the mission is when restaurants open up again, we're just really hoping that there's people to staff them because mm-hmm. you know right. we're we're facing that crisis as well as. You know, restaurants that d- couldn't afford to go through this. Um, there's mm-hmm. also, you know, a lot of other dominoes that are uh, falling in this scenario.
1: So if people are interested in donating, is there a way to do that?
3: Yeah, they can go to the Lawrence Restaurant Um They can find us on Facebook uh, as well. We've got a page. We've got uh, all sorts of resources. Uh, you know, our biggest... Uh, the GoFundMe is, is the, the, the biggest generator right now, and, and that uh, can be searched as well. Uh, and it's the Lawrence uh, Hospitality Workers Crisis Fund, and okay. uh, you know all of those. Uh, but you definitely find the Lawrence Restaurant Association, and uh, it, all the links are right there on, on that webpage for people to help out uh, wherever they can. And to apply as well for anybody that's listening that that really does need the money to uh, to apply from that uh, website as well.
0: It's cool to hear that you guys had actually you know had thought about you know got some of this started
3: already like a, yeah you know, ahead of time ahead of time.
1: You have like a friend at the CDC or just something else <laughs> came up and you know
3: no insider information here. Right, <laughs> and, uh, we're just always looking out for our community and mm-hmm. especially our restaurants. Yeah. You know we all work together. We're we're a big a happy group we know we're competitors in certain ways but when it comes down to the human side of things we're all in this together yeah
0: that's yeah. awesome that's what we love that's what we love
1: about yeah. Lawrence man stuff like that just like makes me so proud to live here you know yeah. yeah have you guys seen you know people ordering takeout like are people doing it I know we're trying to do it yeah um, yeah more we than we normally would been
2: super lucky and stayed pretty steady been meeting our our you know our typical labor percentages and people have been mm-hmm. tipping really well at, at fields and IBS. i Good. mean we're lucky too because we sell beer right yeah. and so like that is probably the thing that is really helping us stay afloat right now is the fact that people can also pick up um pick up a, you know a growler mm-hmm. or, or six pack mm-hmm. or something like that so it's we're really lucky that we have that side of the house to kind of you know offset um where we would otherwise definitely
3: be losing um, mm-hmm. yeah. It is a benefit because I think that most of the places that have moved over to the curbside carryout model that don't have packaged uh, beer product to sell are lucky if they're in a break-even market right now because yeah. the labor is eating them up. It's, mm-hmm. It takes a lot of people to change the Good. business that you started yeah. and to do it a different way, to pack all the food in boxes and, and get it all ready to go. And so a lot of places are finding that it's just really expensive. And, you know, it, it's it, I think we'll start to see more and more close completely. Um, but, you know, I, I was talking to Cisco today and they are encouraging businesses to use them to open pop up shops where they could do sort of commissary style where they will provide yeah. the products the bleach the toilet paper the paper towels whatever you know you know you want to sell and you -hmm. know it'll be cisco packaging like you know institutional style but I think a lot of people would still want to get their hands on a lot of things that they need that aren't on the grocery store shelves
1: well thanks again to Rick and ponta for talking with us today we loved learning about everything that they've been up to and everything that they're both doing to help the Lawrence community through this difficult time and connecting you know local farmers with local restaurants
0: yeah and so like you guys said I think um you know um, ponta I know you also you have an instagram page as well right yeah. uh, you uh, try to keep that updated so that people can probably find your information there definitely. Um, and and yeah I definitely look forward to hearing more about but everything you going on and then Rick, you got, um, like you said, you can check out the Lawrence restaurant association.com yep. for uh, the supporting all that. Yeah. So.
3: And thanks Jake and Kristen for all that you do. This is, uh, this is great. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what you do for the community and, and, uh, talking to us. So we really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really appreciate mm-hmm.
0: it. Thank you. Well, thank you guys. And, uh, yep. Uh, be safe and, uh, we'll look forward to talking to you later. You as That's well. <laughs>
1: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Lawrence Fork in Kansas. We had a great time chatting with Rick Martin and Ponta Flores.
0: If you're able to support the local food scene during this time, we do encourage you to do so. Um, you know, you can order uh, delicious food, beer, coffee, and more from local businesses via takeout, delivery services, or, you know, buying local produce from your local farms. Um, and by donating to the Lawrence Hospitality Crisis Fund via their GoFundMe. Um, So please check out a link in the episode description. It'll bring you right there. And if you can, uh, you know, everything is appreciated.
1: And please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, basically anywhere you listen to podcasts.
0: And you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at Lawrence Forking, Kansas, Instagram at Lawrence Forking, Kansas, and Twitter at Lawrence Forking. Uh, You know, feel free to find our page, just like us, follow us. We're trying to, you know, post some stuff. Um, you know about you know updates about things that are going on, ways you can you know help support the businesses. So um, we're definitely open for receiving questions and things like that. We'll try to help answer them. Uh, things we've kind of seen as we're keeping an eye on um, all the restaurants and and, and uh, food businesses and more.
1: And if you're a restaurant or a food business owner in town and you're interested in coming on the show, just reach out on social media or you can send us an email at lawrenceporkincansas at gmail.com and let us know. We're always looking for new people to talk to or new projects you're working on, Um, especially right now. If you're doing something a little bit different than usual and you want a platform to talk about it, just let us know. We would love to have you on.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: We'll catch you next time.